Welcome to my iBiology seminar. My name is Yunong Jen. I'm a professor at University of California, San Francisco. I'm also an investigator with Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And uh, in the first part of my presentation, I discuss how a neuron uh, develops its neuronal type specific than JD morphology. And in this second part, I would like to discuss the relationship between dendrite morphology and function, and also some of the cellular and molecular mechanisms that control dendrite morphogenesis. In the first part of uh, my seminar, uh, I told you that through the action of transcription factors, and as well as the uh, dendritic interaction, between dendrites and between dendrites and uh, uh, epithelial cells, that uh, this very regular array of uh, dendritic arbors are uh, set up. So uh, to, to cover the entire body wall. So you may wonder, what's the point of this? Uh, what, what's, what's it good for? And, um, and it turns out, that uh, those neurons, the class 4 DNA neurons, they function as a previously unknown photoreceptor. This was quite a surprising finding uh, for us uh, by, by the Xiang uh, Yang, a postdoc in, in, in the lab. So the, uh, those neurons, uh, it, they can detect intense light. And let me illustrate uh, with the next slide. So uh, here we uh, look at the, uh, so here we look at normal larva, and it cross uh, in a straight line, but at time zero, a strong light beam was uh, aimed at the larva, and then you can see that uh, the larva uh, would turn to avoid this intense light, because the, the, the light is harmful for the larva. And the, the bottom trace, again, you have a lava crawling along a straight line. But in this case, the, all the class 4 neurons were ablated. And what you can see is that now in this case, the lava would just uh, run straight through the light beam as if nothing had happened. And this because without the class 4 DNA neurons, the lava cannot detect this intense light. So it turns out that uh, a fly larva has two types of photoreceptors. The first one is the previously known photoreceptors called bobic organ on the left side. And those are two clusters of photoreceptors that uh, are situated inside the larval head. And they, their function is to sense low light and they use aerodopsin as photosensor, just like many other photoreceptors. And then the class 4 uh, DNA neurons were uh, sort of, are the second type of photoreceptor. And their job is to detect uh, strong harmful light. So having the class 4 uh, dendrite sort of form a regular array that tiles the entire body, this allows the larva to detect this harmful light on any part of its body 
so it can get out of the harm's way. And that may be the reason why the organization of the class 4 DNA neuron is so similar to the tile neuron in our retina. And in fact, um, class 4 DNA neuron can uh, sense not only harmful light, it basically can sense just about any noxious stimuli. It can sense high temperature, it can sense harsh mechanical stimulation, it can even sense wasabi, as have been shown by uh, the labs of Simo Benzer, then Tracy, and Adam Patapotians. So you can view class 4 DNA neurons as a generalized nociceptive neuron, and it can detect any sort of uh, bad stimuli uh, on any part of its body. And that, so it makes sense to have uh, this array that covers the entire body. So, so we want to know more about the relationship between dendrite morphology and function. So we ask, uh, what do the other DNA neurons do? What's their function? And turns out they are all mechanosensitive. Now, among all our senses, mechanosensitive is the least well understood. Uh, the, the reason is because that uh, uh, we very, uh, it has been very difficult to identify mechanosensitive channels, which is the sort of first step of mechanosensing. And the reason that's difficult is that the mechanotransduction complex often has multiple components, and often not all the components have been identified. And in addition, usually it's quite challenging to try to reconstitute those complex in a heterologous system, so you can study those, uh, those molecules. But there are some, uh, and that's why even today, that still there's a very short list of strong candidates of mechanosensitive channels. Among those candidates, three of the molecules have been best characterized. They are, uh, those are in red, including MCS, PSO, and NOMC. And the reason is, in those three cases, the molecule itself, when expressed in a heterologous system, is sufficient to produce a mechanosensitive channel, uh, so it make uh, them much easier to study. Now, uh, as it turns out, the uh, DNA neuron is quite well suited to study mechanosensation, and, and, and quite remarkably, because the DNA neuron represent a small percentage of all the mechanosensitive uh, neuron in Drosophila, and yet most of the strong candidates I showed you earlier, they, are, they have been found to be used in this system. So for instance, class 4 DNA neuron, as I already mentioned, they are uh, nociceptive neuron. They can uh, sense uh, harsh mechanical stimulation via uh, PSO. And our, this was discovered in Adam Patapotian's lab. And our lab found that class 3 neuron can sense gentle touch. And this is through a molecule called NOMC. Right? And, and so, uh, so I would like to tell you a little bit about our study of NOMC, and then return later on about the relationship between the class 3 neuron and uh, the, the, the morphology and function. So what is NOMC? NOMC was initially discovered uh, in Charles Zucker's lab. Uh, it's called 
uh, no mechanical receptor potential C. So it was discovered because this gene is required for the mechanical sensitive bristle to, to sense mechanical stimulation. So at the, at, the, at the time when they discovered this gene, they know that this gene is required for the bristle to respond to mechanical stimulation. But what was not known at that point is whether this molecule itself is a mechanical sensitive channel and whether it's sufficient to produce a mechanical sensitive current uh, in a heterologous system. So a few years ago, our lab found that NOMC is uh, expressed uh, highly in class 3 DNA neuron and is required for class 3, class 3 DNA neuron to sense gentle touch. And importantly, we can express NOMC in, a, in S2 cell in a heterologous system and show that it can produce uh, channel activity. And moreover, this channel uh, can be activated by mechanical force. Uh, and, and so, so this is a, a very lucky situation that allowed us to use this to study one of the central problems in mechanical transduction. That is the mechanism of gating. The question is, how does force gate uh, a mechanosensitive channel? There are two general models. The first one is called membrane force model. Uh, the idea is that the force exerted through the membrane bilayer can gate the channel. And the second uh, model is called tether model. So the idea is that the channel is uh, tethered to some intracellular structure, such as microtubule, and the force exerted uh, through the tether can gate the channel. So from the study of uh, Kong, McKinnon, and others, there's been strong evidence for the force, membrane force model for some of the mechanical energy channel. But the evidence for tether mechanism was lacking until uh, our study on NOMC. So when Zucker's lab cloned uh, NOMC, they noticed that it is a trip channel, and it has an unusually long stretch of anchoring repeat. And so this raised the possibility that this long anchoring repeat may function as a tether. And of a postdoc Wei Zhang in the lab, uh, when he was in the lab, he tested this idea. He showed that this, those anchoring repeats are necessary for the mechanical gating of NOMC. But moreover, he did this, I think it's a key experiment. What they, he did here is he took the anchoring repeat with the linker uh, from NOMC and graphed that onto a potassium channel, put it on the, the, to the N-terminal side. And, and so, uh, so the, the, this potassium channel normally is not mechanical sensitive, but by grafting this uh, anchoring repeat onto that, you see that now this, uh, this chimeric channel becomes mechanical sensitive. And, and so this provides, uh, I think, very strong evidence that the anchoring repeat functions as a tether. So at this point, to uh, have a, a deeper understanding of how force might gate the a mechanical sensitive channel, and it would be very desirable to have a structure of this channel. And so we were uh, very lucky to have a collaboration with our UCSF colleague, Yifan Chen's lab. And so uh, the, this is uh, two, uh, two postdocs, uh, uh, Pen, 
Penn in our lab and David Buckley in Evans lab, they worked together and they were able to get a high resolution structure on NumC uh, with Cloud EM. And uh, so this is the side view of the channel and the NumC uh, is a homotetramer. And to our pleasant surprise, we could see all the anchoring repeats. Uh, it was surprising because the way Cloud EM works is that you average over a large number of single particles to get a structure. So if any part of the protein is flexible, uh, then you will get average out. So you either won't see it or see it as a blur. And, and it so happens that the, the uh, anchoring repeat is very well structured. And they form this four helical bundle. That's how we could see this structure. And so you, now you can see a video of this, uh, this channel. And the, the, here is the transmembrane pore part. And this is the side view. Now if we turn it over, now we are looking inside the cell. You can see the pore here. And it's a, it's a fairly narrow opening, so it's probably a closed channel. And this, we looked at the other end of the channel. And uh, uh, so with this structure, uh, it will be very interesting to figure out how the anchor repeat interact with the microtubule. And also to figure out how the force is transmitted through the anchor repeat to uh, different domains. And that leads to the opening of the channel. And, and this structure will guide us to make the proper mutation and so on to test this idea. So uh, a few months ago, uh, I was uh, browsing uh, New York Times. I was surprised to see this picture. And this was the announcement of the uh, uh, Nobel Chemistry Prize. So what's happening here is the committee members gave a presentation explaining their uh, choice. And so that, that so last year, uh, they choose to honor three pioneers of Cloud EM. And uh, so the, uh, to illustrate the uh, usefulness of Cloud EM, they, uh, they select a few uh, biologically relevant molecules, for example. So the title of this slide is uh, uh, Molecules of Life in 3D. And if you look at the three examples they chose, uh, on the right-hand side is the Zika virus for obvious uh, clinical relevance. Uh, on the left side is the PER complex. That is the period protein discovered in Drosophila that regulates circadian rhythm as the subject of last year's uh, physiology prize. And the middle here is our NUMC, I guess, for aesthetics. So as a long-term fly person, it's nice to see that two of the three examples they chose are from Josephia's study. All right, so uh, now let me return to uh, the uh, dendra morphogenesis. And early on, I told you that through the, uh, that, that through the action of uh, regulators, uh, transcription regulators, and the, the uh, several dendrite interactions, and that uh, those can regulate the dendrite morphogenesis. And so there's a, in order to really understand the cellular molecular basis of uh, dendrite morphogenesis, we need to know how do those regulators 
regulate the nuts and bolts uh, that actually build the dendrite, such as cytoskeletal element, lipid, and so on. So to do that, uh, we thought a good place to start is to compare axon and dendrite. Uh, because uh, I, I, I told the dendrite and axon differ in many of their cell biological properties uh, because they serve different functions. I told you early on that the dendrites, they are uh, neurons antenna, they receive signal, so they be able to detect either sensory signal or synaptic signal. That means the dendrites need to have uh, sensory receptors or receptors for various transmitters. In contrast, uh, axon propagates the signal to the nerve terminal to release transmitter, so the axon will need to have a transmitter release machinery. And so you can see different molecules need to be sent to different parts of, uh, of the cell, uh, dendrite versus axon. Okay. So part of this uh, distinction is uh, accomplished uh, due to the, the difference in microtubule polarity. So uh, as a cell, as a neuron develops, usually the axon grows first, and then the dendrite uh, develop a little bit later on. And the microtubule in the axon has the same polarity, that they are all plus and distal. But in contrast, in the dendrite, the microtubule polarity is fixed. So some are uh, uh, plus and distal, some are uh, minus, dis minus and distal. So this difference in microtubule polarity has, uh, has a very uh, uh, strong influence on the trafficking of molecules to different parts of the cell. So consider, for example, a minus N motor like dynein. So in the axon, it can only ship uh, material from the, the axon terminal towards cell body. But in dendrite, dynein will be able to uh, send uh, molecules such as organelle or material for constructing dendrite uh, down, down to the distal end of dendrite. And indeed, uh, when we look at the mutant of dynein, so uh, here uh, we look at, at the mutant uh, D-leg 2, which encodes a subunit of dynein. And you see this, uh, so, so th in this mutant, uh, in this mutant neuron, uh, D-leg 2 uh, is deleted. And you see it's a very striking phenotype. Uh, compared to uh, wild type, the, the, the dendritic arbor is much smaller. There are very few dendritic arbor. We're looking at class 4 neuron. So there are very few dendritic arbor, uh, branches in the distal part, but in the proximal part near the, near the soma, there are uh, actually higher density of dendrites uh, near the soma, and, and uh, this is to compare with a, a normal class four neuron. And to, to quantify this difference, uh, a common way to, to sort of uh, look at the complexity of dendrite is to do this so-called show analysis, which simply means you draw concentric ring around the soma of a neuron, and then count the number of intersections. And so this will give you an indication of the complexity of the dendrite. And so if you do that and compare wild type and d 2 you see that 
uh, there's hardly any dendrite distally, and the 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 uh, density of dendrite approximately uh, is higher in Delic two mutant. So our uh, interpretation of this mutant phenotype is that in uh, in Delic two mutant, and so 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 we assume that dynein normally is involved in uh, transporting like building material for dendrite or branching factor toward the uh, distal end of a dendrite. And without dynein, then those material get stuck near the soma. And that's why you have uh, actually higher density of dendrite near the soma, whereas there are very few in the, in the distal part. So, so then we would like to know what might the, be the relevant cargo that's uh, carried by dynein toward the distal end. And the clue came from uh, uh, one of our mutant screens. So about 10 years ago, we did a mutant screen. We were interested in this difference, uh, how exon dendrite view differently. So we look for mutants that affects either exon or dendrite specifically. And we could do this mutant screen by using this, uh, uh, this uh, reported that I showed you early on. And uh, so this we label all the class four neuron with GFP. You see the really beautiful dendrite out in the periphery. And then the, the, uh, those neurons, they send their axon into central nervous system to form this really uh, simple lattice-like uh, uh, structure. So if we here we open up the lava, and uh, the, those are the sensory neurons that we're studying. They send their, their axon into the ventral nerve core where they make this uh, simple track. So visually, it's very easy to recognize the pattern of dendrite versus axon. So we did the screen, and indeed we could find mutants like that affects axon specifically. So this mutant, you see the dendritic arbor look quite normal, but the uh, axon track is quite abnormal. So this mutant probably affects either the axon growth or guidance. In contrast, uh, this mutant, the axon track actually looks pretty good, but the dendritic arbor is much reduced. And so we found a bunch of those mutants. We call them DAR mutant. DAR stands for dendritic arbor reduction. And we're particularly interested in those mutants because we thought that might provide us some insight of uh, what, what is uh, special about dendrite construction versus exon development. So, uh, so here are some examples. Those star mutants, they have very similar phenotype, much reduced dendritic arbor and uh, normal exon track. And we clone a bunch of those genes. And interestingly, uh, three of them, are two, three, and six. They uh, encode uh, uh, molecules involving ER to Golgi trafficking. So initially, so my thing is surprising that why the ER to Golgi trafficking will affect the dendrite uh, uh, preferentially. And, but now actually there are more and more evidence uh, indicating this is indeed the case. For instance, uh, the uh, McEllis lab uh, found that in, this is a mammalian cortical neuron, there are those den, uh, uh, Golgi outposts which are the satellite Golgi, and that they are distributed in the dendrite, 
but hardly any in the exon. Same applies to the DNA neuron. Here we look at DNA neuron. Again, the Golgi outposts are present in dendrite, but rarely in the exon. And you actually often find them at the branch point. And, and so, so, so we think what those Golgi outposts are, they are the way, sort of a way station for the, for the building blocks for dendrite to be shipped to their destination. And functionally, we have evidence that Golgi outposts actually is uh, important for dendrite morphogenesis. And for instance, we can, uh, we can ablate Golgi outposts by laser. When we do that, that would uh, reduce the dynamic growth of dendrites near that Golgi outpost. Also, we have studied a number of mutations that can mislocalize Golgi outposts, and we found a corresponding change of dendritic morphology. So let me show you a couple of examples. So here is a mutant uh, called lava lamp. The name is not important. So this gene is involved in uh, the localization of Golgi outposts. So in this particular mutant, what you see is that it caused strong reduction of Golgi outposts in the distal part, but an increase of uh, uh, Golgi outposts near the, near the soma. And there's a corresponding reduction of dendritic branch distally, but a lot more branching in the, uh, near the soma. And here, uh, if we knock down this gene by RNAi, it reduces the uh, Golgi outposts both proximally and distally. And you look at the dendrite morphology, there's a reduction of dendrite branching both proximal and distally. So there's a nice correlation. And uh, early on, uh, I told you that the mutant of a dining uh, subunit has a very strong effect on uh, dendrite morphology. And we, we presume that's because the, uh, the cargo, the relevant cargo, were stuck near the soma and were not sent to the distal side for, to, to construct dendrite. And we now think that Golgi outpost is one such cargo. And uh, it, so, so we, we think that the Golgi outpost was uh, sent distally by dynin. Uh, uh, and uh, indeed, when we look at the Golgi outpost in the, in the dynin mutant, you see that there's a strong increase of Golgi outpost near the soma. And but reduction in the uh, proximal site. So again, it's a nice correlation between the distribution of Golgi outposts and the dendrite morphology. So, so this is an example of our effort to try to bridge the gap of the regulators of dendrite morphogenesis and the, uh, the building block, the nuts and bolts of construct dendrite morphology. And, uh, and, we and there's another fruitful approach to address the same question, to try to fill the same gap, is by studying uh, kinase. Okay. Uh, why kinase? Uh, what we already found several kinase. Each one of those affects dendrite morphology in a, in a quite specific way. And the nice thing about kinase is that one can use the method, chemical genetics method developed by our UCSF colleague, Kevin Shokas lab, uh, to identify the kinase substrate. So there's a systematic way 
of linking a signaling molecule to the building block of dendrite morphogenesis. So I'll give you one example. Uh, there's a, this gene called mini-brain. Okay. So now, so so now uh, let's look at the class three DNA neuron. I I told you earlier on, class three DNA neuron uh, can sense gentle touch, and class three DNA neuron also has this special structure we call dendritic spike. There's a little protrusion that's affected by the cup Newton, which I uh, described in the first part of my talk, and. Uh, when, and I also told you that the NOMC is the mechanical sensor used in class 3 neuron to sense gentle touch. So if we stand class 3 neuron with antibody against a NOMC, what you see is that this heavily labeled uh, structure are those dendritic spikes where the NOMC is concentrated. So this makes us believe that those dendritic spikes are the site of mechanical transduction. So combining our interest in the, uh, in the relationship between morphology and function, and our interest in kinase, and so our former poster, Cassandra, uh, who, uh, who now is a, uh, has her own lab at UC Davis. So when she was in our lab, she did a screen looking specific for kinases that affects this particular dendritic spike structure. And she found uh, several, and one in particular uh, that she pursued is this gene called mini-brain. And so what she found is that if she reduced the level of mini-brain, and then those spikes got much longer. Conversely, if she overexpressed mini-brain, it has the opposite effect. So there's a smaller than uh, spike. So there's a dosage-dependent uh, uh, mini-brain of this structure. And then uh, she found the way mini-brain function is that it regulates uh, microtubule dynamics. So if she knocks down uh, mini-brain, then their small dynamic microtubule can get into the, those little spikes, make them longer. And conversely, if overexpression of mini-brain will reduce dynamic microtubule. So what is mini-brain? Mini-brain is uh, originally discovered in Martin Heisenberg's lab many years ago for its uh, brain size phenotype. Uh, one interesting thing about mini-brain is that its mammalian uh, ortholog called DERK1A, which resides in the Down syndrome critical region of, uh, uh, in, in human, and it has been strongly implicated both in Down syndrome and autism spectrum disorder. And in fact, in the recent uh, sequencing study by uh, Maste and his colleague, what they did was they did sequence of thousands of uh, the collection of Simon simplex uh, with uh, thousands of people affected by autism and with their unaffected sibling as control and to look for de novo mutations that might be associated with autism. So from this study, one of their highest hit is DERK1A. So they found multiple cases of, the, of, of this uh, connection. So it's almost for sure it's not a false positive. It's a, it's a real uh, connection. So then uh, from uh, Cassie's study, uh, she knows how mini-brain function. 
So mini brain is a kinase, it binds to microtubule, and through phosphorylation of beta tubulin, it can inhibit microtubule polymerization. So, so, and this property is conserved with the mammalian DERK1A. So with this, uh, so this provides a possible mechanism of how uh, defects in DERK1A may lead to some, a subset of autism disorder, a, a spectrum disorder. And, and, and so, so as I say, uh, given that uh, uh, dendrite morphology is important for neuronal function, it's not surprising that a number of mutations that affect dendrite morphogenesis have been found to be uh, linked to uh, this, uh, neurological disorder, including fragile X, rat syndrome, and so on. And from our study, uh, we uh, keep running into uh, mutation that we study for our interest in dendrite morphogenesis, and turns out there's a potential uh, disease link. So, so, so what, what we study could provide some useful hint for a possible mechanism of some mental disorder. We have only barely scratched the surface. There's much to do to study the logic and molecular basis of dendrite morphogenesis as well as the relationship between dendrite morphology and function. And as I said, that the uh, defect in dendrites uh, often are associated with neurological disorder. So this study may provide useful hinge. And the, the, uh, our experimental system is also well suited to address another interesting question, that is the uh, ability of dendrite to regenerate uh, upon injury. Uh, so for instance, here is a normal class 4 neuron. If you uh, uh, sever all this dendrite, two days later, the neuron can grow a new dendrite, smaller but functional. And uh, a postdoc in the lab, uh, Katie Thompson-Pierre, uh, she gave an eyebrows seminar on this subject. So if you are interested in this subject, please go look at her uh, eyebrows seminar. Finally, the credits. Uh, I'd like to thank the uh, postdocs and students who did uh, the, the work that I described today. Many of them now uh, they have their own labs at the different universities. And we'd like to, uh, I would like to thank uh, our CrowdEM collaborator, Ethan, and his postdoc, David. And Lily is my long-term collaborator. And we thank uh, those, those agencies for uh, funding. Uh, thank you very much for listening.